We're actually beginning a new uh, sermon series this morning. And this is, it's the third in the overall series of proclamation of the word. We, uh, if you remember at the beginning of the year, we said we felt like there was some things that we needed to, to proclaim God's word into and over in our congregation, some things that perhaps the enemy had gotten a, a foothold in and we needed to, to proclaim the eternal truth of God's word into. And so the first of those, if you remember, uh, was marriage. The second one was having a, a poverty mentality. And this is the third and final of those, and that is discord. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't really like the idea of preaching about this particular topic. It's not a fun and jovial kind of subject, uh, but it's an important one, and I think a seriously important one from a scriptural perspective. So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, right now, as, as we look at your word again, we invite you to speak into us. God, we don't, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers. And so we're inviting you to work in us by your spirit, uh, cause th us to recognize where we're wrong and be willing to change and allow you to, to alter our course and our direction. And Lord, work in us by your word and your spirit to your final end. And we trust you to do that because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the deal. We don't, as leaders, see this as a major issue right now in our congregation. I told the rest of the elders that, honestly, uh, the churches that I go to, if every single one of them had the level of discord that we have here at our congregation, the body of Christ would be in a lot better shape, all right? So, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, I, I, I came across something that, that a while back as I was reading. It's a, it was a, I was reading a book called Reckless Faith, and it's by a guy named Kevin Harney. I don't really know anything about him, but I just thought this, this quote was great. I did not grow up in a Christian fellowship or in a family that went to church. When I started going to church, I had no history, either good or bad, with being part of a church community. I came into the family of God with a blank slate. Over the coming years, I was amazed at how kind and loving Christians were. For the most part, they reached out to me, tried to, figure, tried to help me figure out how to walk with Jesus, and cheered me on. A lot of them even prayed for me and encouraged me as I was growing up in the faith. With time, I got so close to some Christians that I discovered they loved me enough to tell me when I was making dumb, a dumb choice or living in a way that did not honor God. These people actually cared enough to point out where I was messing up and helped me to learn to read the Bible, make better choices, and receive the grace of God when I stumbled and fell. I have to say it and say it loud and clear, I am a big fan of Christians. And see, that's what I think of our congregation here. I mean, you guys know me well enough. I, in essence, grew up here. Barb and I moved here when we were still teenagers. Um, and so this, is, this has been home, but you guys, so many of you have been such a, a major help in my life over the years. And so we really see this as a in many ways, as a discord-free congregation, all right? Now, having said that, as leaders, we are aware that there have been things in the past that haven't been quite that rosy. 30 years ago, committed members meetings here were at times kind of ugly. People threw stuff around, not physical, but words and stuff. Um, it, it was not pretty. Along with that, I would 
venture to say that at least double the number of people that are here in this room have over the course of time left this congregation on, let's say, less than ideal terms. Don't misunderstand. A lot of people have left on good terms. That's a good thing, all right? But a lot have left on less than ideal terms. Maybe they got upset with somebody in the congregation. They got upset with something that leadership said or did and walked out in kind of a disgruntled manner. When those kind of things happen repeatedly, there is a pattern that is established and, and I believe a, a spiritual atmosphere that is established. When there are repeatedly wrongly handled situations, the enemy can gain a foothold to sow discord into a congregation. And so that's why we're doing this series of messages because we want to combat that from the word of God. Does that make sense? All right, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Galatians 5, 19 and following, it says this. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a, that's a pretty sobering passage. But, you know, I've said for a long time, and most of you have heard me say, that I think we have in the church, and I'm not talking about our church, in the church in general, we have a tendency to rate sins like they rate events at the Olympics. Some things in our mind are a perfect 10. I mean, they're really, really bad. If you're talking about sin, really, really bad. You know, some of the things in this list, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, sexual immorality, those are really bad from our perspective. But there are other things in this list that are perhaps, from our perspective, not quite that bad. Matter of fact, they don't seem really all that bad to us at all. And one of those is discord. Now, that word discord is not a word that we use often in our culture. So I did some research just trying to find out. Do, a, do a, an internet search on the word discord and you'll find out some pretty crazy stuff. Um, I, I typed in Discord into Google every possible option for the first two pages were all about a, uh, an app for texting and chatting that's used for, by online gamers so that they can communicate with one another while they're doing their online game. And it's called Discord and it's designed so they can communicate. Doesn't that seem a little odd? I didn't get that one at all, honestly. But every single possibility for two pages. I was like, what? Uh, and apparently there's also a, a television series called My Little Pony. Some of you are nodding. Into, I, I, sorry, I have no idea. But uh, Discord is apparently the name of a villain, one of the arch enemies in that series. Now, I get that one. That makes sense to me, all right? But that... The, the gaming app, I, I didn't, didn't understand at all. Most of the time when you type a word into Google, one of the first things that comes up is the definition of the word. If you just type a single word, you'll get the definition. The definition didn't come up until three pages later, which if you understand, if you, if you, if you follow the concept, what that means is that from a cultural perspective, that gaming app is way more important than the actual definition of the word. That seems crazy to me. 
Anyway, I looked it up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I really like that dictionary. I don't know, maybe it was Del Tackett in the Truth Project that got me going on that because he quoted it a lot. Um, but it's just something about the, the, the way that they uh, uh, just put it out there, the definition, that I, I just think it's, it's profound. Anyway, he, he, they wrote this. Disagreement among persons or things, between persons, difference of opinions, variance, opposition, contention, strife, any disagreement which produces angry passions, contest, disputes, litigation, or war, discord may exist between families, parties, and nations. That's pretty complete. That's pretty profound right there. Now, interestingly, there seems to be some question about the exact origin of the word discord, but the one that seems to have a whole lot of support and that I personally think uh, uh, merits looking at is um, it's, discord is made up of two parts, discord. Cord comes from, the, uh, from the, the, the Latin word core, which means heart. Dis, if you understand, it, it, it's, the connotation is that like a severing, a pushing away. If, if you don't like something, you dislike it, which means you wanna push it away. You don't wanna have anything to do with it. Or think of, the, think of the family with an adult child that, I don't know, goes out and robs a grocery store and kills three people or something. What are the, what's the family going to do? They're going to disown that person, right? They, they don't want to have anything to do with them. That's the idea. So put those two things together, dis, a, a severing, a cutting off, cord, the heart. So it's a cutting off from the heart. That's the idea of that word. And that really goes along with the, uh, the, the Greek word, that we translate most often as discord. It is eris, not to be confused with eros, um, but eris. And according to uh, Strong's uh, dictionary, quarrel, i.e. by implication, wrangling. That word is used nine times in the New Testament. And depending on your translation, it is translated as either strife, contentions, making trouble, fighting, quarreling, cutthroat competition, I like that one, or rivalry. Now, right off the bat here, I want to say that there's a major difference between this word discord and disagreement. We can disagree without being in discord. Now, our culture says just the opposite of that. In our society, when we disagree with someone, what do we do? We villainize them. We don't want to have anything to do with them. Look at the president of the United States right now. And some of you are smugly sitting there thinking, well, yeah, that's what those people are doing to him. And I'm going to intentionally step really hard on your toes because it's also what the right did to Barack Obama for eight years. It's exactly what's happening to Trump right now. In our culture, that is an increasing kind of thing. We seemingly have little room for any serious civil discourse. We have no desire to demonstrate empathy toward those that we disagree with. We just as soon slap them, honestly. Those sickos that want to kill unborn babies. Those wackos that think they can change their gender just by changing their mind. Those fruitcakes that want to redefine marriage. And you guys know me well enough that I, from a biblical perspective, disagree with every single one of those things just as much as anybody here. 
But I also recognize that we are not going to change them by haranguing them. We're not going to win them to Christ by kicking them. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So villainizing them doesn't really seem like it's the best idea, does it? Sounds a little bit like what, some of what we heard last week. We'll talk about that later, by the way. So what does all this have to do with the sermon topic? What does it have to do with, with discord? Well, see, here's the deal. Having that mentality in our culture, we have a tendency to bring it into the church. So when you and I disagree on something, when we don't see eye to eye on something, then our first response is to villainize the other person. We don't want to have any, instead of seeing them as our brother or sister in Christ, we now see them as our opponent. Instead of seeing them as fellow Christians, we now see them as the adversary. And that's when we begin to have strife and contentions and fighting and quarreling and cutthroat competition and rivalry. And honestly, from a, a biblical perspective, I think that discord is one of the worst things from God's vantage point. I really do. The Bible doesn't pull any punches on this. Rome, uh, Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Wow, to me that is an incredibly sobering passage. And there's a whole month's worth of sermons in that section of scripture right there, but I want to focus just on that very last one. God hates someone who sows discord among brothers. God hates someone who sows discord among brothers. Do you want God to hate you? That's what it says. It's not something to be taken lightly. Think about it like this. As sheep, we would expect that a wolf would be out to get us. That's not rocket science. It's just the normal way things work. We expect that a sheep is going to want to devour, or a wolf is going to want to devour sheep. We understand that. But when one sheep attacks another sheep, that's not normal. When a, one sheep stabs another sheep in the back, that's not the way that we expect things to happen. <laughs> And yet that's what happens when somebody stirs up dissension or strife or discord. One writer termed that whole idea as unnatural and monstrous. And I think he's exactly right in saying it like that. A while back, our family read the, uh, the book, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. I think I've quoted from it before. If you guys haven't read it, it's a great book. He, he's traveled all over the world and uh, uh, been written about the persecuted church, just amazing stuff that he's encountered. But um, one of the stories from his travels to China, he said this, when authorities arrested and imprisoned a house church pastor and father of seven children, they also placed his wife under house arrest. The pastor's wife was told that she was allowed to leave her home only to shop at the local market. That seemed, didn't seem to ma matter to her. She had no money to purchase food at the market anyway. She had to rely on faithful fellow house church members for food. As it turns out, they provided for her well. 
She would wear a baggy smock with large pockets over her other clothes when she went to her village open-air market. Walking slowly through the crowd, she, as she wandered in and out among the stalls, she would notice a nudge here and a tug there until she had walked through the entire market. By the time she reached home, her pockets would be filled with tomatoes and onions and other items. Sometimes there was money in a pocket. She always seemed to come home with just enough food to feed her family of eight for another day. Occasionally, when those seven children got really hungry, the mother would be surprised to find a chicken on her front steps. One day, her oldest son was offered a job in a nearby city, and there just happened to be a bicycle leaning up against the front door. Seemingly out of the blue, the boy had transportation to and from work. See, that type of thing couldn't happen. It, it wouldn't happen if those people were at odds with one another. If there was discord there, if there was strife in their midst, it wouldn't happen. Ted Decker, in his book, Waking Up to Who You Really Are, he said this, We call ourselves Christian, but we're not known for the kind of love Jesus said would mark his followers. And he's right, and I think that's sad. Some time ago, I was ministering at a church in another state, and while I was there, two different people told me the same story about something that had happened in their, in their church history. There was a lot of backbiting discord going on at the time, and they had, during that time, they had a series of, of special services guy that came in that did the special services and he was not told about this backbiting, this, this discord that was happening, but at least he wasn't told in the natural. God told him. And so during one of the services, he said, this needs to stop or God is going to judge the church. <coughs> Apparently that didn't help. They just kept right on, just ignored what he said. Well, it wasn't long after that, that there was an earthquake in the area and the rumbling and shaking broke the concrete in the, the church. There's no basement. It's a concrete slab. Broke it right down the middle aisle. It literally broke the church building in half. They had to demolish it and rebuild. True story. I get the impression God is not all that much in favor of discord. In fact, maybe he even hates somebody that stirs it up. Let me do it this way. If an arm or a foot or a finger is amputated, that part of the body dies. I mean, you see that imagery in 1 Corinthians 12, right? I've taught about that numerous times over the years that we need to be connected, that when it's severed, when it's taken away, that disconnection means death. It's done. But I want us to consider that idea from a different perspective this morning. What if we are genuinely attached to the body, a, a, a local Christian community, if you will, but another part is cut off. You know, we've all heard the story about the guy whose leg is amputated but still occasionally feels pain where that leg once was. The body wants to make that connection. It knows there's supposed to be something there. The other parts of the body are intrinsically aware that that part is missing. It's gone, but it wants it to be there. See, that's what discord does to the body of Christ. Even if you're not the one who is cut off, there is still an underlying awareness, at least at some level, that that person needs to be connected. Here's a thought. 
If you ever have an inclination to speak against or even to think against somebody else, you need to ask yourself a question. Is this person a Christian? Have they been redeemed by the blood of Christ? And when you answer the question, if you find yourself saying, yes, but, then I think you need to ask yourself why you're putting that but into the sentence. For example, well, yes, he's a follower of Christ, but he's not a very nice person. Or, yes, she's a Christian, but she said some really unkind things about one of my best friends. See, those extra things aren't anywhere close to the level of the yes in that sentence. Are you with me? Those things and so many others are clearly, clearly need to be relegated to a, a lower place. If that person really is a follower of Christ, then he or she is my brother or sister in Christ. And that is way more important than those other things. Now, understand this. In everything that I'm saying here, it doesn't mean that we don't ever talk about one another. Every group, no matter what kind of group it is, people in the group will talk about one another. It's just part of life. But where it goes sideways is when we say things that are designed to divide the group. For example, when you say, well, he said this, and that's not just factual information. It is designed to sway that person's opinion about the person you're talking about. You following me? When we do that, that's the root, that's the basis of discord, if you will. Let me, let me come at this from a little different perspective. I think in order to really understand this whole idea that we need to, to go back to some, some basic, some foundational understandings, First, we need to remember that, and you guys have heard me say this before, according to Ephesians 2, Jesus died not just to reconcile us to the Father, but also to reconcile us to one another. So we are, we are indeed, through the blood of Christ, reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to one another. But I really like how Paul says it just a couple of chapters later in Ephesians 4. He says, we are members of one another. Those who have been, been born of the Spirit, if you will, we are intrinsically attached to one another. We're not separate. We are members of one another. So discord, if you understand it, discord hurts not only the person that it's aimed at, but it even hurts the person who's doing it. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, it says, if one member suffers, all, not most, all suffer together. So any sort of discord is hurting everybody, including the person that's sowing it. Along with that idea, we need to remember that any time that we are dealing with another person, we are always dealing with somebody who has a sinful nature. And by the way, they, when they're dealing with you, have the same problem. Just want to make sure that we're all together on that. I've been reading a book, The Me I Want to Be by John Ortberg, and it's taken me far longer to read this book. You know, when you read, it on, you read a book on Kindle, you don't have the same uh, going into it, the understanding of how long the book is, really. 
This has taken me like way longer than I ever anticipated. Anyway, he's got some good things to say. One of them was this. He said, some people tempt me out of the flow of the spirit. They judge me and I feel discouraged. They dislike me and I feel rejected. They are a black hole of need and drain me. They throw roadblocks in my path and discourage me. They anger me. They scare me. They depress me. Plus, I don't like them. Anyone here relate to that a little bit? But he goes on to say, why does God allow difficult people in my life? What other kind are there? If God were to get rid of all of the difficult people in the world, if he were to remove everybody with quirks, flaws, ugliness, and sin, he would get awfully lonely. And he's right. Something I said uh, three weeks ago when I preached, uh, and, and then I came across this quote by Stephen Altrogi, and I think he said it even better. He said this, Honestly, I really don't like dealing with other people's problems. I've got enough problems of my own. In fact, I don't like dealing with needy people in general. Needy people require time and resources and emotional investment and phone calls in the wee hours in the morning and the occasional bailing out of jail. Being around them is draining. I would rather be around people who have something to offer. You know, funny people or smart people or popular people or rich people. People who make me feel good about myself. People who let me be a burden to them instead of the other way around. Whew. Isn't that what we want so often? We expect things from other people that we aren't often willing to give ourselves. We, we hold other people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to. But there's another aspect of recognizing uh, that whenever we're dealing with somebody that they have a sinful nature, and I think this is the more important part, Is there anybody here that would admit to occasionally being cantankerous? Uh, I, I can say this because I'm talking to me here, all right? That would be me. Anybody else besides me? So you guys that admit that you are, it might be true that you are. But here's the higher truth. You're also holy and righteous and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, it changes things. Anybody here besides me would admit to being argumentative? A couple of us, okay. Wait, same people, this is scary. <laughs> We're gonna have to have group therapy later or something. And it may be true that you are argumentative, but it's more important to understand that you're a new creature in Christ that you have been born again, that you're not just that old person. By the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received a new nature. Yes, we still have that sinful nature, but the more important one is the fact that we are new and holy and righteous in the sight of God. So let me ask you a question. What if, what if we were to choose to see one another like that? Instead of seeing one another as that old, sinful, argumentative, cantankerous person, what if we saw them as being that new creation, that new creature in Christ? Even when they're being argumentative and cantankerous, are you with me? Do you suppose it might change how we interact with one another? See, I think when we see one another, when we relate to one another on that level, it changes everything. At that point, I, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to undermine you. 
I want to demonstrate the love that Jesus said we're supposed to have for one another. I want to show the compassion that he showed while he was visibly here on earth. How we see each other as either old creatures or new creatures changes how we interact with each other and even how we talk about one another. I really like the way that Eugene Peterson phrases it in the message translation, Matthew 5. By the way, I, don't, I often quote from the message in my uh, sermons, but I don't read the message as my uh, daily devotion time. It's not really a translation. It's a paraphrase, all right? I really like it as, as a, uh, just a, a help to study but it's not really as clear and concise as something like the, uh, the English Standard Version or the New King James or something like that. I just want to make sure I'm clarifying that here. You're probably familiar with how this passage goes in, in most of our Bibles. Jesus talking and he said, you, you heard that it was said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy and I'm telling you, no, no, you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Message says it like this. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty, if all you do is love the lovable, you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. I love that. You're working out of your true selves, your God-created uh, God selves. And then he talks about live out your God-created identity, the real us, if you will. See, when we get that, it changes how we, how we act. But when we see it in one another, it also changes how we interact with each other. There's one more, I think, important thing that I need to put in here uh, beyond when, when we're dealing with one another, when we're interacting with one another, we are not just interacting with sinful people. We are, uh, but at the same time, we also have an, have an enemy who is involved in that situation all too often. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, it says this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So think about this. Paul here is calling them babies. I mean, the word is infants, but in the Greek, it's the same. It's, it's babies. And he's saying, I only gave you milk because you weren't ready for anything else because you're babies. That's what he's saying. But then he goes on to, uh, to kind of explain why they're babies because there's jealousy and strife among them. By the way, that word strife there in the Greek is that word eris that we talked about earlier, discord. So think about it. If having jealousy and strife or discord 
means that we're babies, if you're the enemy, what do you want to do? You want to stir up jealousy and discord and strife because if he can do that, he will perpetuate our infancy. He keeps us ongoingly, is that a word, as babies. No wonder there's so much strife in the church. I'm going to talk about our church. I'm talking about the church in general because we have an enemy that likes to sow that into us. Our, enemies want, our enemy wants to keep us as babies. So I'm convinced that causing discord is a high priority for him. Because why? He knows that if that strife, if that discord is gone, he's in a lot of trouble. A church that is genuinely united. The, the church, by the way, that Jesus prayed for in John 17, there's no stopping that church. See, that's why I'm convinced that the, the early church had such a profound impact. Look at the early chapters of the book of Acts. Look how often that, that unity, the opposite of discord, is emphasized. They were all together in one place. They were all of one accord. All who believed were together and had all things in common. I mean, you just keep hearing this recurring theme over and over and over again because it's so important. I have no doubt that being united, being discord-free, if you will, touches the heart of God, which, which if you think about it is crazy because we can't do it on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. So we can't be united. We can't be discord-free without him working in us. And yet when it's there, when it's present, that it touches his heart. That is amazing. See, what I believe that God wants from us is simply a willingness. Not that we always do it perfectly, but that's our desire. We want to have no discord. We want to be united. I think God operates on our, our heart attitude, if you will. So let me ask you this. What's your heart in this whole area today? Do you want to, do you want to villainize others in the body of Christ who are different than you or who think differently than you, act differently than you? Do you want to cut them off from fellowship with you? Do you want to talk badly about them behind their backs? I don't think there's a person here that would answer yes to any of those questions. But the reality is that we do those things too frequently. But there's good news. I think I can pretty well say confidently that everybody here today has encountered that one who likes to spend his time looking for lost coins and lost sheeps, sheep and lost sons and daughters that one who loves us more than we can possibly begin to imagine, that one who cares intensely, and he doesn't want us to be divisive. So in those moments, even when we're sowing seeds of discord, he is there gently beckoning us back. Oh, there may be times that he has to act like the, the father of the three-year-old who's throwing sticks and has to grab our arm and stop us. But at the same time, he still loves you. He still offers his grace. 
John Piper said it like this, Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. And it's true. Without His grace, we're empty. But with His grace, we've got everything we need. He wants to help you and me be discord-free, united in His body. Will we let Him? Let's pray. Lord, today, as we have listened to Your Word, Lord, I know I've been convicted and I trust that others have at times throughout this. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have sown discord, that we have gone against what your word says. Lord, we're asking you to change our hearts and our minds. We're asking you to cause us by your word and by your spirit to be united in you the way that you want us to be. And Lord, we trust you to do that, to work in us, because you're a good God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.